Okay, so uh, Simon, we have just gotten started. This is your first call, and uh, uh, we've been talking about the kinds of things that you've been doing. And so, um, got to the point of starting to talk about um, wholesome thoughts. That um, there's actually a sutta, it's number 19 in the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha talks about having wholesome thoughts as opposed to unwholesome thoughts. Also, a big part of the practice has to do with seeing hindrances and removing them. So the hindrances are then uh, what you would call hindrances or things that are going to hinder you from being in the state of mind or the state of feeling that you want to be in. Right. You can also then see that then uh, the hindrances are unwholesome. So if that's if that's the case, then basically what we can begin to look at is, is that for an individual's whole life, up until, let us say, he starts practicing correctly, for his whole life he has been telling himself unwholesome things and wound up feeling the way. We've basically been talking ourselves into feeling bad for our whole life. Yes. And so now it's time to start talking ourselves into feeling good by having wholesome thoughts. Right. Okay. Metta is in the direction of having wholesome thoughts. However, um, it's also possible, in fact, it's quite likely for people to want to and think they are practicing metta, but they're still having unwholesome thoughts. And so then the metta doesn't work so well. And uh, uh, possibly a way of saying it is, is that metta is going to be a gift that you're going to develop so that you can give to other people. But you've got to have it for yourself. Right. Within, within Anapanasati Sutta, uh, this is actually called gladdening the mind or brightening the mind intentionally by putting wholesome thoughts in. Now, uh, that doesn't mean uh, that we don't do any noting at all. In fact, we have to do that noting of the Mahasi method, but we're only going to note it enough to recognize it through investigation to see that this is unwholesome. Mm. Once we determine that it's unwholesome, once we determine that this, in fact, is dukkha, then what's the point of keeping it in the mind? Now that we've determined that it's unwholesome, out it goes. Right. Yeah, I understand that. All right. Well, if you can understand that, then you can see why so many people who are practicing the Mahasi method actually don't practice correctly because they're noting and continue to note hindrances without removing them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I should clarify that that was as I was taught in the beginning, but then I haven't practiced that way for a considerable amount of time in terms of just just noting, regardless of being able to tell like I don't I don't I don't use that practice anymore. The noting practice, I just essentially recognize mindfulness when it arises 
and and then in note when there's uh, if there's a hindrance present, do what I can to try to remove it to the best of my abilities. Okay. Um, let's, let's look at it this way. If, if you're going to, let us say, bake a cake, then you have to have all of the ingredients for a cake. Okay. We'll name, uh, okay, so uh, a cake would have flour and sugar and an egg and uh, milk and maybe some butter. Those are the kind of ingredients that you would put into a cake. If, and then you have to have, um, let us say, the skill of mixing the batter and then cooking the cake. So we need both the ingredients and the skill. If we don't have all of the ingredients, and it doesn't matter how skillful we are, whatever we come up with is not going to be cake. For instance, if you leave a couple of ingredients out, like the sugar and the flour, then the butter, the eggs, and the milk is not going to make a cake. Is that right? Okay. All right. So we can think <clears throat> of is the Anapanasati and the Anapanasati Sutta in combination with other suttas is a complete and whole practice. And that over time, we have to keep going back to, I mean, over time, over the centuries, we have to keep going back and making sure that we've still got all of the ingredients for, for practice. Because we okay. can look at it and we can see that with Vila Maramsi's metta practice, he's missing something. He's missing an ingredient. But the very ingredient that he harps on is the ingredient that the Mahasi method is missing. And that's the metta, right? But uh, the uh, real metta cannot be um, developed directly. Um, and here's an example of that. If, you, if you've noticed or have read suttas that have to do with metta, and there's only a very few of them, but they talk about um, uh, the six directions of in front of you, behind you, beside you, and right. above you, and below you. Basically, these six points of the compass have to do with the old uh, Brahman view of, of things. In other words, the people that you deal with in front, business people. Your friends on one side, your family is on the other. Behind you are your enemies trying to stab you in the back. Above you, you have priests and, and political authorities and, uh, and priests and whatnot. And below us, we have our employees, our, uh, our workers, that kind of thing. In all regards, this has to do with our relationship with other people. And so... Someone says, okay, I'm going to go practice mudita. I'm going to go cheer up my dad. And so dad's in there grumpy. He, the student goes in to cheer up dad, and dad stays grumpy, and then the student slinks off as a failure. Maybe he tries it two or three times, but he eventually fails and slinks off. The reason for that is because he really doesn't have his joy fully developed yet. 
And so dad's grumpiness will trump the joy, <laughs> which means you've got to have more joy than he has grump. Where is that going to come from? That needs to be developed in advance. Okay. Okay. That's the important point is, is that we have to develop before uh, we're going to put something in, in motion. An example of that also is, is that if a student is uh, learning to play the piano, taking lessons, and at the end of the year, the recital is there, if that student is uh, sufficiently practiced and perhaps even performs for his aunt or his family before he goes to the recital, then he's got a much better chance of acing that recital than if he only half is interested. He doesn't really practice well. And then he goes to the recital and he's going to perhaps mess it up. All right. So this what this is looking at is, is that we can think of then as dealing with other people in the world is performance, but that we've got to practice first in seclusion to practice so that we can have the skills that we need to deal with the world. Ultimately, then that skill would be the upeka of being able to handle anything because we've already got uh, the foundation built within. So that foundation then needs to be a complete foundation in the sense that it's got all of the factors of Anapanasati. Now you can see many of the features of Anapanasati built right into the uh, Mahasi method in the sense of rising, falling, touching, sitting. The rising and the falling is the rising and the falling of the chest and, and the breathing. The touching is our tactile sensation and the sitting is actually something deeper. It's called propioceptic sensing. But you know the posture of your body. You don't have to look in a mirror to see exactly where your body is. You know exactly where the body is. The only time that you would really need a mirror is if you're um, uh, <clears throat> doing ballet or something like that. But in general, when you're laying in bed, you know the posture that you're in. If you're on your side, you know you're on the side. If you're sitting up straight with your back up straight, then you know that you're sitting up straight with your back up straight. This is what they mean by the sitting, is that we know the posture. <clears throat> and so the rising, falling, touching city is all about being in the here now with the body, breathing. And so Anapanasati actually is the uh, uh, the actual name of it in the in the Pali. And Anapana actually means in breath and out breath. And it's the same word that's in the Sanskrit of pranayana. You've probably heard of pranayana yoga and whatnot. All right. And so if we're practicing Anapanasati correctly, <clears throat> that means that in fact we're breathing very well that we're actually practicing breathing. Okay. Um, and that uh, basically what happens is, is that the humans shut down. When we're not doing anything, our breathing gets very, very shallow. 
the Mahasi talks about uh, looking at the abdomen, but really we want to look at more than just the abdomen. We want to make sure that our chest is moving, the abdomen. Basically, we talk about the abdomen only because of the diaphragm. The fact is, is that nobody breathes down. The lungs don't go down to where the, the stomach is. I don't know why they lift, they got hooked on that word abdomen, but you can see that it's possibly a translation issue. That in fact, when I was uh, uh, a teen, way back in the 1960s, meditation was commonly known as navel gazing. <laughs> and yet I have never, ever heard of anybody's practice actual meditation practice of all of the various uh, people. No one is teaching navel gazing. <coughs> but that idea of very, very low, I don't know where it came from. Because most of the breathing is going to be done in the chest. And in fact, most of the blood that's associated with uh, keeping us alive is pooled in a higher level, in a higher place that it only goes down to the stomach when we're uh, digesting food. And so bringing up our awareness to more of the actual paying attention to the breathing itself to make sure that it's a long breath. And so that's a point of sati. When we understand this is a long breath, that means that we have to have mindfulness or investigation just a short period of time, this is a long breath. And then when we're breathing out, we also breathe out kind of in a sigh to make sure that we're breathing out long because we're making a note of it. So every breath is a long in-breath and every out-breath is a long out-breath and that's two points of sati there. And we begin to slow down the breathing and pay attention to it. Now, uh, in order to do that, that takes the mind that in fact the number one skill that we have to develop is the skill of sati. And you can see that once you begin to see how often and frequently it's used and how it's put together. For instance, on the Eightfold Noble Path, sati is there. In Anapanasati Sutta, sati, Anapanasati. We also have the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. And then in the Sambhojana, the first item is unremitting Sati. So what Sati means does not, and we, it's almost again a translation error. Much of what the problem with people practicing uh, uh, the Dhamma and the Buddha has to do, the reason they're doing it wrongly is because of all of the translations of the suttas got started by uh, Christian scholars who were translating things but didn't know what they were doing. They were learning the language while they were translating. And they never did learn the Dhamma. And so you can imagine that it would be like this, that if you had a scientific paper, say uh, rocket engineering and or um, uh, details of uh, nuclear fission. And that document was done in German. T 
to get it translated into English, you need several things. One is, is that you need not just someone who knows German and a little bit of English. That's not going to work. You need someone who really knows German, but also knows English. But you also need someone who knows uh, the topic. Yeah. Right? If he doesn't know what he's, what he's translating, then uh, it doesn't matter how good they do with the language. Well, this is the problem with the, with, with this, uh, the Pali canon. In modern day, we are still let us say, both struggling with and um, uh, suffering under a set of bad translations that got started in the 1880s through the 1920s with Riles Davies, I.B. Honer, and all of that. On top of all of the later literature that had been written after the time of the Buddha by people who were interested in writing books. And so we have a lot of literature that is superfluous, badly translated. And so we need to begin to understand what, what the right words are so that we can begin to practice correctly. The first word that we need to look at, in fact, is the word dukkha. Because dukkha is almost always, even when I'm not thinking about it, uh, I translate it as suffering because yeah. you got in the habit of doing that. And yet you can walk down the uh, the street with a Dhamma book, proselytizing like Christians says, oh, I've got the right thing for you. Uh, I, uh, if you're suffering, I've got the solution for it. No one will admit that they're suffering because they're not. But if you mention the word, oh, this will take care of all the small dissatisfactions, now people are beginning to be interested because they can recognize that, yeah, even though they're not suffering, life still is full of dissatisfactions. Yeah. That we're not uh, uh, pleased with the way things are. Also, by translating it as uh, uh, suffering, we're making it really big. <laughs> Really powerful, perhaps even really difficult to deal with, taking a long time. But we look at uh, uh, the teaching of the Buddha as, uh, in fact, uh, the, in Sutta number 22, the Buddha says, I have both formally and now teach only one thing, and that is Dukkha, Dukkha, dukkha Naroda. Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Now, there is a way of practicing meditation, and that is to, uh, to, to see the Dukkha, to note the Dukkha, to note it, to look at it. Dukkha, 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 Dukkha. Oh, I'm going deep into the Dukkha. I'm going to find some insight in the bottom of this Dukkha someplace. It's almost like a great big barrel of horse shit. And the kid's in there going, wee, wee, wee. And mom says, well, what are you doing? He says, with all this horse shit, there's got to be a pony in there someplace. <laughs> no, ponies don't normally hide in the bottom of a barrel of horse shit. <laughs> You are not going to find joy at the bottom of Dukkha. Dukkha Naroda actually means it exactly that way. 
see the dukkha and throw it out. Be finished with it immediately. This is the right way to practice. Going back to that sutta number 19 about wholesome thoughts, to recognize that we have unwholesome thoughts and to throw them out immediately so that you begin to have wholesome thoughts. Well, one of the wholesome thoughts that you could have would be, may all beings be happy. But that's actually not going to be as beneficial. But in fact, um, the Buddha, when he was, uh, let us say, sitting under the bow tree in uh, Bodh Gaya, putting together his, his doctrine, his teachings of the Four Noble Truths, there was a key point. And that key point was when he said, Aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I see you, Mara. This is basically the wake-up call, is to wake up, do the investigation, and see that the mind has hindrances. By saying it that way, aha, I see you, Mara, that's automatically already gladdening the mind. And it's already changed what the content of the mind was. So let us say that I'm having an argument in my mind with Aunt Susie. And then I wake up and I say, aha, I see that. And so I can throw that argument with Aunt Susie out of the mind immediately and now i have finished with that dukkha so this is basically what we're we're looking at is uh a, a finding a practice that we get immediate benefit from because if we're getting immediate benefit from meditation practice then we have the incentive to continue to practice <laughs> yeah right but if you're practicing meditation and only still have the hope of getting some benefit out of it, then we become serious meditators. <laughs> okay, so this this whole idea then, um, we, we need to look at how the practice uh, evolves, that basically everything is under this umbrella of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And when we understand it like that, we can understand that actually the teaching of the Buddha is quite simple. But that all, but you've also then heard, well, wait a minute, it's not that simple because I know that you've got it by the numbers. You've got 16 of those and 36 of these things and five of this and four of those and four more of them things and three of this and two of that, and six of those things, five of this, five, five aggregates and five hindrances and uh, uh, six inputs and uh, 12 steps of Anapanasati and 16, no, 16 steps of Anapanasati, 12 steps of uh, Petita Samapada and all of that kind of stuff. And it's just, wow, what a bunch of stuff. <laughs> But that's only because it's completely unpacked. This stuff all packs back into K and in, the shape almost like packing a suitcase. That once you've got it all packed together in the suitcase, you can pick that suitcase up and take it with everything. Right? 
But when you unpack the suitcase, now the room's got stuff all over the place. Another way of looking at it is, is that the Dhamma is really kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. And that as we're gaining pieces and seeing how this piece of the puzzle fits in, we begin to get the overall mosaic. So this is the kind of way of looking at it. And so when we're looking at the picture, the whole picture is, is of when you see dukkha in the mind, throw it out. That's the entire practice. <laughs> okay. And you can see also... I try. That I, I try. <laughs> I try. <laughs> that's, but that's what uh, failures do, is they try. Okay. Okay. The victims try. The winners, the lions, do it. So, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda unpacks immediately into the Four Noble Truths. We call these truths noble because once they're defined, they're clearly self-evident. They're obvious. And not only that, but they're obviously true for human beings from the beginning of humanity right to the end of humanity. That every human being is born has dissatisfactions. Every human that's born that has dissatisfactions, there's a cause and a reason for these dissatisfactions. There is also the possibility for each one of us that in fact on a regular basis, though people don't know it, there are times when people are in a state of satisfaction. They're in that third noble truth. And we should begin to wake up for that so that we know when you're in the third noble truth. And then we have the method. Now, uh, the Eightfold Noble Method has been wrongly translated into the word path. But the word path itself can be seen as a, as a method or a way of doing things. But quite often we think of the path as like a, uh, a road that has a time on it, that at day one, you're at this point of the road, and then you're walking and walking down that path, and then you're 10 miles down the road the next day or something like that. Don't get that attitude about it, because that's the wrong way of looking at it. It's not a path. It's a, um, it's a, it's a method. And that this method um, has uh, three components in general. The three components are sila, samati, panya. You probably heard this before. Yeah. Sila, yeah. samati, panya. All right. Uh, and that we can also say that Buddhism is taught to people and that if they ever really get it, then they've made a change, making them a different kind of person. So you'll have ordinary people, and then you will have nobles. The ones who are noble are the ones who really understand the teaching of the Buddha. All right, so there's a transition period going from ordinary person to high-class, quality, uh, noble mentality. That means then 
if there's two kinds of people like that, then there's actually two eightfold paths. The path for the beginner, or the methods for the beginner, and then the culmination of that with uh, the noble. With the ordinary person, they almost always start with sila. Sila, samati, panya. Basically, what you can say, though, is, is that um, we have to make a change in reference. And that change, major change in reference is, uh, in Western mind, we have the reference of time span. That we do sila first. And after a while, then we'll do samati. And then after a while, we'll do um, uh, panya, right? That's not exactly the way to look at it. Basically, all you need to do is to sit down, to be quiet, to close your eyes, to get into a formal meditation posture. And at that point in time, right now, your seal is perfect. Done deal. Instant. Just shut up and sit down and your seal is perfect right now. So now it's time to move on. And that is to move on to get the mind cleaned out. And once the mind is cleaned out, then we can begin to see, uh, basically, um, why we were wrong uh, when we had the idea of, I thought I knew who I was, which is the personality. Every student comes, in fact, a, a lot of students will say, well, uh, it's okay to record, but if I start talking about personal stuff, then I don't want it to be recorded. All right? What we don't understand is, is that we are attached to a personality that is mobile and fluid. Our society teaches know the self is uh, almost eternal. It lasts forever. That the uh, and this is another issue about bad translations, because they translated ata and anatta as self and no self. But the real point that the Buddha is making is is that it's not eternal. It's not fixed. So really, we're talking about a soul. Your eternal soul does not exist. Why? Because it is uh, the self is actually pliable. So personality view then is what we cling to in the sense of I think that's me. But as we go deeper into the practice, we begin to see that, oh, that's just a hindrance of the mind. It's not me. An example of that is I am angry. No. You're not angry. You can't possibly be angry. Anger is there. The feeling of anger is there, but you are not that feeling. I understand that. Okay. If you are not that feeling, then now begins to understand that you're not the personality, that the personality changes, that when the personality doesn't change, that's because it's caught in a habit cycle of action and reaction and action and reaction is called samsara. But we can wake up and get out of that. 
And this is what the practice of Anapanasati and the Eightfold Noble Method or Path is for. And so when we look at it in the way that it's going to be practiced correctly, we recognize that there are four items on this list that are really our skills to be developed. One is right view. And what we mean by right view is to keep looking. Normally, people will take a viewpoint and draw a con and see what they see and then draw a conclusion. That's an ordinary view. One's right noble view is to keep looking, keep investigating, keep noting, keep watching, keep investigating. And that's a skill to be developed until we begin to notice and watch and investigate on a regular basis. The second one then is sati. Sati means basically to wake up or to remember to investigate. Um, you could go so far as to say that in modern times in English, we have come to use the word mindfulness. But I never heard the word mindfulness ever used by anyone who was not talking Buddhism. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not an, it's not an English language word that's used. They invented it. Because they didn't understand what it meant. Basically what it means is to wake up. More specifically, it means to remember to wake up. Yeah. Yeah, I like I I've heard people use define sati as remember and I like that definition a lot more because it feels in line with with my experience of what it feels like when mindful like right in the moment when mindfulness comes online then there's for me But it doesn't this, come this, you wake up. There's a difference. You're oh, doing the wake up. One second, I'm going to say goodnight to a family member. <laughs> Love you all. Okay, goodnight. Sorry, can you can you repeat what you just said? You said well, you don't wake. You said you don't wake well, up. You actually mindfulness doesn't come to you. That's what a lot of people think. Oh, when mindfulness comes, it doesn't come. You have to wake up. You have to remember. You have to have the intention to remember to wake up and to pay attention. Now, once we wake up and do an investigation, that investigation then will uncover uh, let us say the investigation that we're doing in this moment is to investigate what was the mind doing uh, a half a second ago. Or what is the mind up to? When we recognize that what the mind was up to was unwholesome, then that's when the Buddha would say, 
or the practitioners say, aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I can see the stuff on the inside of the mind as being unwholesome. Aha, I see you, Mara, is actually a wholesome thought. And so now we're going to change it from unwholesome to wholesome thought, and that change requires some effort. takes some effort. In the beginning, it takes more effort, and then as you become skilled, it becomes easier to do. But in all cases, right effort is the least amount of effort needed to actually get the job done. Okay. And yet most students of meditation work too hard. They put in too much effort, or they don't put in enough. Okay. All right. And so the analogy that would be used would be imagine that you're on a highway or on a road and, and uh, standing in the road and you see a big truck bearing right down on you. Full speed. We have several possibilities of how we're going to do that. One is that we could have been standing in the road and not seen that truck and it just ran over us. The other possibility, though, is that we woke up. We could see that the truck was coming. So we've now we've done an investigation. We've woken up. We've seen the truck. We can see that it's bearing right down on us. Are we now just going to let it run over us? No. No, no, but a lot of students do that. Right, but that's wrong practice when we just let those hindrances roll on, right? The other possibility is like Popeye, we're going to put our big fist out and take a strong stance and see if we can stop that truck. That's when students work too hard. In fact, the intellectuals, the computer scientists, the uh, engineers, uh, um, uh, lawyers, accountants, that's what they'll do, they'll work too hard. But the right thing to do is to merely step out of the way. Just to stand out of the way and let that truck pass right by. This is the right way to practice. Knowing that any of those thoughts that come by can be harmful. And if they are, we're going to stand out of the way. We're going to let them go, note them well, and let them pass. There is a noting. But the kind of noting that we have, and this is kind of important, so especially those who have done some Mahasi, let's not use the word noting for a moment, but use the word witness instead, because it's got a quality to it, okay? The, the first kind of witness is the witness who saw the accident, he saw the scene, he saw uh, the robbery, whatever it was that happened, he saw it, that's what makes him the witness. But then later time in court, he's going to go on the witness stand and he's going to tell the story. Okay, so now he's a witness, but now the witness is telling story. First, we have a witness who sees, and now we have a witness who tells the story. Most Westerners, when they start noting, they begin to tell themselves stories. They label. What we're talking about noting is very quick, very fast, just the observation, just the, uh, uh, enough of an observation or enough of an investigation 
to recognize that this is not wholesome. And then we throw it out. So this is the correct way of practice. And we're by doing it like this, we're, we're practicing the actual Eightfold Noble Path of right um, investigation, right view, right sati, and right effort. Run and circle around each other so that uh, we bring about the quality of anapanasati by in, so the sati or the waking up and investigating that's actually step nine of anapanasati now when i say steps i'm not talking about it in the sense of up two three four it's much more of a dance that we're we're jumping around that anapanasati sutta is uh specified in the order it is because it fits directly into the Satipatthana. And so it's in the order of the Satipatthana in the sense of the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind objects. But this is not the way that it's to be practiced. The first thing is is to wake up. The second thing is to do the investigation. The third thing is, is to take the right effort to throw the hindrances out of the mind and the right effort to take a deep breath. By doing that, now we're also practicing step one of Anapanasati, taking a long, deep breath. We woke up. We've uh, um, uh, begun to gladden the mind. So now we're going to work together to bring about, let us say, the feeling of success. Aha, I caught you was actually a success. The job that needed to be done was the job of cleaning the mind out of the hindrances and putting wholesome thoughts in. Once the wholesome thoughts are in the mind, the job that needed to be done has been done. Therefore, it's time to have a celebration. The job is done. The day's work is over. It's sundown, the slave can, t can set down that big bag of cotton he's been filling up and sit down on it and, and relax. This is step four then, and this is what we mean by right attitude. The right attitude is to relax, the work has been done, the mind is clear, the mind is free, and by doing that, we now develop feelings. So we've been working with the body, we've been working with the content of the mind, are these hindrances or not? Now we're gladdening the mind, and by gladdening the mind, we're actually talking ourselves into feeling really good. This can be done with metta, but we don't have to have metta for those people out there. We need some metta right here on the inside. Well, I'm really glad that I don't have to think about that anymore. So this is the way that we begin to practice is getting ourselves into a good state. Over and over again to remember to bring ourselves into a good state using this um, method of the Buddha. And with that, we can say, all right, if I've got right attitude, along with right investigation, right sati, and right effort, 
then those combine together to bring about right unification of mind. Right unification of mind in the Pali is uh, um, area, sama, area, samadhi. samadhi. And samadhi does not translate as concentration. This is one of the biggest problems in Western mindset, is they think that it has to do with concentration. What it really has to do with is organization, and the organization is unified. It's of one mind or one whole thing. It's not scattered by having that thought over there and this thought over there and whatnot. So someone who has a unified mind in that moment will naturally have Shiva. He will naturally have good behavior. Why? Because he doesn't want anything. We're unified. We're whole. We've gotten ourselves satisfied. Once we come to a state of satisfaction and wholeness, we don't want anything. If we don't want anything, we're unlikely to hurt someone to get it. We're unlikely to steal it if we don't want it. If we're satisfied, because of our satisfaction, the sila comes along naturally. So in the beginning, especially in Buddhist countries where they teach the, uh, the children Buddhism, is like the same thing that we, uh, in all religions, we teach the children a bunch of rules. But then later when we get wisdom, we can recognize that all the rules were only to give us an idea of how to be. But basically, Morality is not defined as a set of rules. In fact, you can see any government, for instance, the United States, even just the IRS code, 80,000 pages of code for the IRS uh, regulations. And if you took all of the uh, rules on the books, how many laws uh, do you think are in the United States? must be millions and millions of laws. And they even have one law that says ignorance of the law is no excuse. And yet they've got millions of laws. Every little town has their own regulations and everything, right? Kind of complicated. But with the teachings of the Buddha, we recognize really there's only one law. There's only one point to sila. And that is dukkha, dukkha naroda. When we see dukkha, we come out of it. And that's the only rule we need. Because when you're free from suffering, you're not going to harm anybody. All of life's problems and all of life's uh, uh, need for rules comes because someone is dissatisfied and they're trying to make their life better by stealing something from someone else. But if we're already completely satisfied, then our behavior is exemplary. So in that regard, uh, the, the, uh, uh, our behavior, uh, as far as Sila goes, is a natural outcome, just like Metta and Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka are going to be natural outcomes of having a mind that's free from suffering. But there is some time to practice these things. 
that it's not an instant thing. And the reason for it is, is because of the old habits that we've gotten into and the habits themselves will come back on their own. The word that the Buddha used has been translated. They're called adventitious defilements. And what they what that actually means is, is that the defilements will come up whenever they have an opportunity to come up. And so part of our job then is, is to give the defilements less and less opportunity to come up. We could go so far as to also talk about it in the sense of the defilements is like the underlying tendencies and that they manifest themselves in the mind as hindrance in this present moment. Yeah. All right. And so we only have to deal with them in this present moment when they come to mind. Because if you, um, let us say that um, if you take a plant and every time you see that plant growing a shoot, you cut it off, eventually the roots are going to wither and die. So the defilements themselves are going to wither and die if you give them no momentary oxygen, if you give them no surface, if you give them no daylight, if you keep throwing that stuff out every time it comes up and substitute that with wholesome thoughts, then now we begin to layer in wholesome thoughts and wholesome activities so that when um, uh, later, when we begin to understand how the mind works, we can see that the new information is going to help us to have new kinds of thoughts. In other words, if you spent 10 years having bad thoughts, and then for 10 years you start having good thoughts, in that 11th year, 21 years later, the likelihood now is that you're going to have, continuing to have wholesome thoughts, good thoughts. Right? Because you spent 10 years in building that habit up. Mm-hmm. That's what we have to look at is, is that we're actually going to have to deal with old habits continually come up. And when they do, we have to check. Is this wholesome or is it not? More than likely in the beginning is going to be more and more unwholesome and unwholesome and unwholesome. But later on, it begins to mostly it comes up wholesome and only occasionally it's unwholesome. So this is why we have to keep practicing. But the practice itself is actually quite easy. And the number one skill that's needed to be developed is the skill of to remember, sati. To remember to wake up, and then when we do, we check through an investigation, is this wholesome or not? Most likely in the beginning, it's not going to be wholesome. And so we say, aha, I caught you, and out you go, and now I'm going to substitute wholesome thoughts in. So in that context, you can see that meta which is actually a way of dealing with the world, you can still have thoughts of metta, which are wholesome, if you're putting it into anapanasati as a complete practice. It has to be a complete practice. In other words, you have to go through the various steps and that 
uh, the outcome then from this practice is going to be right noble attitude. The attitude of I can do it. The attitude of a lion. That in fact, in one of the suttas, number 48, it states specifically, the Buddha says, is that um, first he has a long paragraph about hindrances and obstructions. And then uh, the statement is, is that uh, when the student understands that no matter how obstructed the mind is, that he can, in fact, clean it out and come to this present moment to see the way things really are in this present moment. That's the first step of the noble path, is that knowledge that um, you could call it attitude, that I can do this. It's a can-do attitude. I can do this. I can clean out the mind. I can feel good right now. And so when we have this right noble attitude together with the other factors, we can see then that the mind becomes unified and whole and that part of the outcome uh, is uh, in the Anapanasati Sutta, it talks about uh, pity and sukha. And we'll talk about that more later on, uh, on the next call. But basically what pity and sukha is, is joy. It's the feeling good. It's the very feeling that you want to have if you're going to practice metta. Without yeah. joy... Your metta doesn't mean anything. You can, if you have no joy in your heart, then when you say, may all people be happy, that's empty and hollow. Yes. But if you say it like this, may all beings feel as good as I do right now. Now we've got something. May all beings be feeling as good as, as we feel right now. That's the way of practicing metta, is to get yourself into that really, really good state. Yeah. And we do that this way that I've just gone over. Right sati, right investigation, right uh, effort to bring about that right attitude. And so this is how we practice Anapanasati is with the Eightfold Noble Path. When, when you said that Bhante Vimala Ramsey was missing, you said he was missing a step? Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. what, is, what is the step that he's missing? Because, right. yeah. Well, the, um, the, the step that's missing is that um, metta is the outcome, not the process. The process is joy. The outcome of joy is metta. Metta does not create joy. Joy creates metta. Okay. Okay. Because okay. we're going to take that metta, we're going to take that friendliness out into an unfriendly world. Your friendliness is going to be met with unfriendliness. If you don't have joy, you can't keep it going. You've got to have that wellspring. This is what's so, missing. 
is that so why? Uh, the development of the pity and the sukha that are part of a, uh, the Anapanasati. The, the, the attitude of a lion, the attitude of, I can do this. That's what's missing in metta, because metta is normally going to be practiced by people who uh, do not feel like they can do it, that they come to, everybody comes to meditation as a loser. If somebody already had the attitude of a winner, they wouldn't come to meditation. All right. And so we have to change that attitude into a can-do attitude. And this is, uh, and it becomes unremitting, especially unremitting pity, unremitting relaxation. So in fact, what's missing from metta practice is in fact the sambojana. That we have to have the factors of enlightenment at least in that moment of time when we're practicing metta. Otherwise, it's not going to work. That Mr. Grumpy is going to win because our joy is not unremitting. Our pity is not unremitting. Okay. okay. I think I, 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 I somewhat understand. Well, this is kind of complicated. This is a little bit more than uh, would be in an introductory talk. So we'll talk about this more and more. Uh, but we need to find out what is the correct practice of Anapanasati. And then you can see that uh, metta practice will fit into that. But metta practice of and by itself is not enough. Yeah, I see. I see that when I when I do practice I, I was mostly practicing metta as we as I stated but then uh, recently started practicing Anapanasati with more metta and just yeah saw that that it it, it is I mean for me I guess I think you're using the word I'm I I'd like to understand how you use the word pity uh, because the way that I've used it has been, I, I think it's different than the way that you're using it. And so I, I'd, I'm using I'd, it most specifically in the sense of the winner's attitude. Okay. The champion. We'll go into this much more detail. Okay. Let's not go too far. Let's go exactly only in the sense of what we need to get started correctly is to recognize the hindrances as hindrances and throw them out and gladden the mind. And you don't need thoughts of other people to do that. Metta, <clears throat> compassion, sympathetic joy um, have to do with how we deal with the world, how we deal with other people. Can, can you say what more we're doing about... in our practice right now is how do you deal with your own mind right here, right now? Yeah. Can, can you so say if a few... You... Sorry. 
So if you use the word meta, that's okay, but the meta that we're working with is meta for this uh, situation right here, right now. Can you feel good? Can you develop joy in this moment? Okay. I get that. That's what you have to practice is getting joy in this moment. And that joy comes from the success of throwing the hindrances out so that we can relax. Can, that's what I was going to ask you about. Can you say a few words on what you mean by throwing the hindrances out? Because my experience is that sometimes the hindrances are like really st sticky. I, I can know. They don't stick. They reoccur. Okay. They don't stick. But they come back. That's what I was telling you before. They reoccur. What do you do when they reoccur? You throw them out again. So by throwing out, do you just mean sati? Become aware of them? No, no, because you can watch it and leave it there. No, you actually have to change the content of the mind from something unwholesome to something wholesome. Okay. You have to start having good thoughts. Thoughts, basically the thought of, I'm glad I don't have to think that. Thoughts of, well, I feel good right now. Thoughts of, I can do this. Thoughts of, this is okay. Thoughts of, this is nice, satisfying. Okay. Okay, these are the kind of thoughts that we will start to work with to begin to feel good. Making sure also that you're getting a good deep breath. <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and finish this now. I think that we've gotten uh, a, a bit going here. Remember the Eightfold and Noble Path, most specifically about sati and right effort and investigation so that you can see that this is a hindrance. It's not worth thinking about. Let's throw that out and think of something that's worth thinking about, something that's wholesome. You keep okay. practicing that over and over again. That's the, the place to get started. Okay. When should we check in again? Pardon? When should we check in again? Or um, practice? Let us say a couple of times a week would be fine for a while. Okay. Okay. So I'll look forward to seeing you in a couple of days then. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. Okay, we'll see you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.